Welcome to Cat Talk Radio with your host, Molly DeVos. Molly is a cat expert and certified feline training and behavior specialist. With her expertise and her guests, you'll learn how to interpret and control behavior issues with your cat, how to entertain and converse with them, and keep up on the latest feline news around the world. Now, here is Molly DeVos. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Cat Talk Radio. I'm your host, Molly DeVos. Today, we're going to talk about feline wellness with Dr. Brian Hurley, the medical director of AmeriVet Veterinary Partners. But before we jump into that, we actually have a question, a follow-up question from last month's episode about dental. And before we jump into that, let's welcome Dr. Hurley to the show. Thanks for being with us today. Hi, I'm glad to be back. I know our 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 listeners really really appreciate these segments and you being on and and so much so we're you know we're getting some really good questions and I want to read this one because I think it's an an excellent follow up question um, about about dental and uh, Angelina says. Hi, Molly. First, I want to say that I love your podcast. As a veterinary assistant student, it really helps to keep me engaged in my studies. I do have a question regarding the last dental episode where you talked about periodontal disease and stomatitis, though this may be an old wives' tale, as my grandma was the one who told me this. But I was wondering about the effects of repeated general anesthesia in cats. My grandma told me it can have negative effects on human health, and I'm curious about whether it has the same effect on cats. My one-and-a-half-year-old cat, Jida Marie, was diagnosed with juvenile periodontal disease, and I've been using the water additive in her static bowl. I worry it could be pointless in her cat tit fountain, as it has a filter, in addition to brushing her teeth every few days. However... I would love to get her in for some cleanings to be sure it doesn't become a lifelong condition for her. But my only concern is the use of repeated anesthesia potentially causing issues for her in other areas. I thought that was a great question. That was a great question. Yeah. What do you think about that? So, you know, my take on anesthesia is obviously there are always the the inherent risks of anesthetic complications, right? Including death, but they're so minimal in our pets and even in people. Uh, So I think the most important thing to consider is working with your veterinarian first and foremost, if their physicals are normal, their blood work is normal, they're healthy, there's no indication of underlying disease. I wouldn't be afraid of anesthesia, particularly knowing that teeth can be a source of kidney problems and heart issues down the road if the teeth get really bad. So I wouldn't necessarily shy away from it. My cat lived to 16 years of age. I did a dental in him every single year under anesthesia because I couldn't clean his teeth. He wouldn't take the water additive. So I took that risk of anesthesia to make sure his dental health was good. And so I wouldn't shy away from it. I, you know, I don't think uh, as long as you're working with your veterinarian, I think veterinarians are also very good during those annual exams. They don't feel that a dental is necessary. They're not going to necessarily recommend one. So 
yeah. just work closely with your your veterinarian and if they feel a dental's needed by all means i would not be afraid of it and i think you know i remember my grandmother saying this too and this could just be a an era thing but you know that it wasn't it wasn't like you're going to die under anesthesia, but that every time you go under anesthesia, you lose some brain cells. And so you didn't want to go you know, very frequently. Is that, is that an old wives tale and has it just gotten better or? Yeah, I, I, I think the anesthetics have gotten a lot better. We also are very cognizant of pain management. Uh, we'll do other medications pre-op, so we can minimize the need of excess anesthesia. And so because we've gotten so much better at it, I think the procedures have gotten a lot safer. Okay, good. All right. There you have it, Angelina. Take your cat and get the dental done, especially if it's been diagnosed with juvenile periodontal type stuff. Yeah, I think it's important to to get that cat on a regular regime, as we as we said in that episode. And thanks for reaching out. And anybody else listening that has questions for Dr. Hurley, absolutely send them to me. You can email them to me, molly at cattalkradio.com. We, uh, we would love to hear them. So today we're going to talk about feline wellness in general. And, and I want to start with how do you how do you select a vet? Is there is there something that people should look for? How, how does one go about doing that? And of course, I should say that preface this, you know, these podcasts have a long shelf life and somebody might be listening to this five years after we record it. But at this particular time, there's a vet shortage and sometimes just finding a vet that will take you and, and you can actually get into is a huge challenge. But assuming we didn't have those issues what what do you recommend for for aligning with a vet? My biggest recommendation for aligning with a veterinarian is it you know let's assume you have multiple choices in your area it would be family recommendations friend recommendations but ultimately also going and visiting the veterinarian if you don't have a relationship with a veterinarian and talk with them, meet with them. What's their personality like? You know, take your, you know, take a pet with you and see how they interact with the pet. So you get that feeling of uh, comfort that this is going to be a good match for you because, you know, let's face it, you know, we all look for different things in our veterinarian and the way I treat one owner, I can treat a second owner identical and, you know, I just shared this the other day. One client will only see me after that visit, and the other one would prefer to see one of the other veterinarians. And but I was the same person, you know. And so you just have to you you just have to work with them. I'm also a bit big advocate, particularly when you're going through the kitten uh, regimen. Most practices will have a standard protocol for kittens and dogs and things like that. And what's important is also meet the other veterinarians in the practice, because ultimately when an emergency occurs, you may not get to see the vet that you're you're usually seeing. And so you won't be meeting that vet for the first time in, you know, in a very intense uh, appointment. Yeah. You know, and 
you know, when you're scared. I mean, it's it's hard to also be working with somebody you've just never met. And are they good about like if somebody were to just call and say, hey, I just want to come by and meet you between appointments. Can we just, you know, without my pet, but can we chat in the hall? Or are you suggesting that you make an actual appointment with the different vets in the practice? I think it's good. It's going to be practice by practice. You know, some practices may want you to set up an appointment, but I think it's money well spent because mm-hmm. you're really trying to set up, you know, the success of your pet and you with the veterinarian of your choice. And so I, I don't think it's a bad expense because this hopefully will be a lifelong relationship that you'll have with this veterinarian. Uh, but some practices, you know, I've had owners walk in, set up an appointment, and then all of a sudden my staff will go, oh, there's the one that you're going to be seeing. And so I'll stop and I'll chat with them real quick uh, just in the hallway. Yeah. Here, sadly, in, in our community, there is such a vet shortage. There's there's only one clinic you can actually really get into, and they won't allow you to make appointments. It's it's like a it's like an urgent care. It's show up and wait in line, and you get to see whoever's available at that moment that your number comes up. It's uh, it's kind of kind of sad that it's it's degenerated to that. Yeah, like you said, right now that's the unfortunate thing is you know, demand is high and vets are low. So you're absolutely right. But in in that ideal world, if if that can happen, you know, that's a, you know, a way I've always told owners, it's a great way to meet a veterinarian. Um, If in this day and age, if you take them and you just don't get that warm and fuzzy feeling after the appointment and somebody else will see you, there's always that opportunity too. Right, right. Now let's talk about kittens. You were talking mentioning kittens. Kittens need so assuming someone adopts a kitten, it, typically if you're going to adopt it from a shelter, it's already going to have its boosters and things like that. But let's say it doesn't. What are some of those kitten boosters that they need early in life? So, you know, typically speaking when we're seeing kittens uh for the first time, and there's no vaccine history. Now, I'm going to preface all this with you will work with your veterinarian because we will customize recommendations to the individual patient based on lifestyle, risk of disease processes, things like that. But normally speaking, what we'll be looking at is we'll be looking at giving a, a two to three shot series of uh, feline panleukopenia, the chlamydia virus. Um, and also the herpes virus or Khaleesi virus, which is kind of an all-in-one booster shot. And is, uh, that, the, is that what we see is called FVCRP? Yes. Okay. So, so that, that is definitely um, the initials that you, that you will see oftentimes appear on the, you know, on the invoice. Uh, we also start them with rabies in the course of that first year you know, as well, typically as starts off as a one-year rabies vaccination. And then leukemia becomes an interesting vaccine because if you, if you kind of follow the feline practitioner's guidelines for uh, leukemia, one of the things they start talking about is, you know, you test them that, you know, at that, when you see them, and then you go ahead and do the series that first year. The concept is this, 
everybody says that their their kitten is going to be indoors. And then they'll come back and you'll find out that for whatever reason, they're sneaking out or now they're outside. And so you've protected them knowing that they were hopefully negative on that test. You've protected them against the leukemia virus. Now, if they truly stay indoors um, and at that first year, they're like, nope, they're they're going to be indoors the rest of their life. There's no risk. You don't continue that leukemia vaccine. So uh, the leukemia vaccine is an annual thing. It's not a one and done. It uh, There's annual and there's also one that will last two years. I so see. a lot of work has been done in vaccinations. And the, again, this is why it's so important uh, to go to the veterinarian at least once a year because we need to discuss what's happening in the, the area and, and make sure that we're following a good vaccination protocol because your FBCRP can be given every three years in a lot of instances, um, you know, at this stage. There are other vaccines that are adjuvant free that need to be given every year. And so it's just working with your veterinarian and discussing their vaccination protocols and their recommendations for your pet. Yeah. And so I had a, a veterinarian recommend to me recently to do an FVCRP vaccination on PICO because I'm in the shelter so frequently and, you know, could be carrying some of those, those viruses and stuff home with me. Is that, that making logical sense too? That's logical sense because again, um, it's always about lifestyle and risk of exposure. Yeah, And so we have to weigh everything and coming up. It's not just a one size fits all. And, you know, and we're veterinarians and we all have our comfort level of what we want to recommend. And so uh, there's that at, at play as well. And so that's why you have to have those discussions and get into, you know, the office to, you know, to stay up to date with the current recommendations. If there were an outbreak in the area, we would know about that and we might change the frequency because the risk has just gone up significantly. And so we want to make sure we're protecting um, our cats. Yeah. Yeah. And, and is it like the flu shot where the cat might have exhibit some illness symptoms, you know, get a runny nose, have some virus symptoms? Is it, is it actually a, like a live virus vaccine where they can, they can have some symptoms after? There are some modified live components, like the rabies vaccine is a killed vaccine. Um, typically speaking, I always tell owners when I was in practice, vaccines we hope could be 100%, but, but we know better that Really, in life, nothing's 100% guaranteed. Well, except, you know, maybe that we're all going to die at some point. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, there are vaccines like the panleukopenia um, vaccine. We don't see that disease much anymore. And it is the vaccine is very highly effective at preventing that disease, where when you're talking about the herpes and Khaleesi virus, what we hope to achieve is if they get sick, that the symptoms and the, you know, and the rate at which they resolve those infections is much faster in a vaccinated uh, kitten or adult cat 
than say an unvaccinated where they could get pretty severe symptoms. Yeah, that makes sense. Another thing that that you're going to want to do when you get a new kitten is obviously, you know, I, I get some identification on it because if it gets out to your point and sneaks out or gets out of the house, darts out a door or something, um, you know, you want somebody to be able to call you and say, I've, I've found your, your kitten. What do you recommend is the, the best type of identification method? Well, I, you know, I think the traditional method in, in a situation like that, where they're just getting out and you're just hoping whoever finds them, you know, is going to pick up the phone and call you would be just your traditional collar and tab, you know. I'm always a big fan of making sure that if you're putting a collar on your cat and they're going to sneak outdoors, you want a collar that will break away if it gets caught on something uh, because, you know, that's definitely could be an issue with cats and climb trees and be around limbs and things like that. Uh, I think that's probably the better. Now they're coming out with GPS collars where you can locate them yourself. So that's another mechanism. And then the biggest one that somebody can't take off or throw away or hide from you would be the microchip. You know, yeah. I'm still a big fan of microchipping, mainly because when we get pets from the shelters or we get stray cats that come in, the protocol at our hospital always was you scan them, see mm-hmm. if there's a chip. And then hopefully we can reunite a cat with a cat owner uh, that way. And every once in a while we do. Um, sometimes there's no client affiliated with that microchip because they've decided not to register too, you know, but yeah. at least it's another way that uh, we can hopefully get them back home if, if they get lost. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, I've seen a lot of uh, x-rays come across Facebook recently with the microchips migrating down into the legs and things like that. <laughs> Yeah, they definitely can, you know, migrate. So you do have to scan the entire body. You know, the mechanism really supposed to be when you do it, it it generates a little reaction. So they develop some uh, tissue around it to kind of hold it in place. But yeah, that's probably another good thing to ask your vet at the annual visit, though, is, you know, scan, scan. Let's make sure the microchip is still up in the shoulder area where it's supposed to be. Right. Absolutely. It never yeah. hurts. I mean, it's a, it's a quick process to just make sure it, not only is it where it should be, but that it's also functional. Yeah. I have seen them stop transmitting the number, you know, so we can't pick the number up. And so it'll all of a sudden it's a defective microchip. Doesn't mean that we're going to go in and remove it. It just means that, you know, obviously it's not going to be a good source of uh, being able to relocate your cat or locate right. your cat. Right. Which is so important. Now right. we mentioned um, we mentioned briefly feline leukemia and 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 FIV and I know you know I I'm so familiar with that of course in a shelter setting because we we test we do that combo test for for FELV and FIV and a lot of shelters have just stopped because there's so many false positives and things like that. What do you think though? And in terms of a private practice, you know, should should I be getting PICO, FELV, FIV tested now that he's an adult? I know he had one as a kitten before I adopted him and it was negative, but is that something I should keep doing? I have read that 
just like heartworm testing in our canine patients, we recommend it on an annual basis. If you have an outdoor cat, you could make the argument that they should be tested annually because you want to be surveying in the event that there was either one, a break in the vaccine, or two, if they're an outdoor cat and the owner elected not to do the leukemia shot, that they haven't gotten infected. I think in reality and in general practice, usually what happens is we'll test them early. To your point of false negatives there or false positives, definitely happens. And so coming out of a shelter, I will always recommend retesting if the shelter did it. Even if, you know, if they come in and say it was positive or if they say it's negative because there can be a law. And usually I'll do it about four to, you know, uh, four to six weeks down the road. Sometimes I've done as much as six months just to make sure uh, that they are either positive or negative. Um, so as far as, you know, I think that's going to be the discussion with the veterinarian again and what what their you know, what their belief process is um, as far as the testing goes. We always will test if they're exhibiting symptoms and we want to rule that out as a possibility too. So mm -hmm. we're doing it more diagnostically, even if they have leukemia shots, even if we know they've tested negative in the past, we're going to, you know, if it's on the list, we're going to test for it. Yeah. We don't want to miss something that we could easily diagnose in the practice. Yeah, it's not been something that I have done with Pico because he's indoors only. I mean, if he has a catio and when he's outside, he's with us on a leash. So it's not like he's going to be fighting. He's neutered, right. so he's not going to be mating. So, he, you know, he's not going to really. And, and neither of those diseases are transmitted, you know, casually. So, I you know, I don't I haven't really done that. I also um am slow to get him rabies vaccinated because he's again not outside he's not in contact with other animals at all you know wild or or domestic so um and it's not something i can bring in off my shoe you know right the the only thing i'll say about rabies since you brought that up is you know that one is the 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 one that is required by law right right you know? and so that's the main reason how everything else that you know that we do from a vaccination wellness point of view truly is optional highly recommended but optional so if a client says no i don't want that fbcrp then we'll try to educate them but we can't force them to do it with mm -hmm. rabies we're bound by law that not only are we bound by law to give it as pet owners, you're bound by your city ordinance it because it's more of a risk because it's fatal. It puts the human population at risk. And so that's the one they don't mess around with. Um, and, you know, there are really strict guidelines on how you handle a cat, you know, particularly cats, because they tend to go out and love to get in fights is we always have to figure out their rabies status and then figure out, you know, are they going under a six month quarantine because they're unvaccinated? Are they going under a 45 day quarantine? Cause we just want to observe them and make sure they didn't get rabies from who, whatever bit them. And so that's, you know, that's the one where I would even encourage you 
<laughs> yeah, he turns uh, he turns three on Monday, and he had a, a three year vaccine. So um, this next time we go, we need to do that. And I do think I'll get him FECRP vaccinated at the same time. Like I said, I'm around so many cats in the shelter and potentially bringing home stuff. So right. And yeah. it was interesting, too, because I uh, last week was at the Western Veterinary Conference mm-hmm. and I sat in, you know, partly I tend to try to pick topics that, you know, if I have a case that I'm struggling with and there's a lecture pertaining to that, I will go sit in on it. Uh, this time I decided to go sit in to hot topics in feline uh, medicine Oh, good. Because of this show, I wanted to see if there were any pearls I could pick up. And and the veterinarian that was giving the lecture years ago, I mean, he's been on every board, vaccination boards and all these other boards, just very well respected in the in the industry. And he was talking about years ago, he could almost be considered anti-vaccine mm-hmm. because risks and you know fibrosarcomas is something you'll hear about you know cats that get vaccinated can develop these fibrosarcomas uh and when he was talking this time he's now pro-vaccine you know it used to be that about one out of every ten thousand cats might develop a fibrosarcoma and he was saying more recent data is showing about one in 16 to twenty thousand. so he's not afraid of vaccines um, anymore. And so that was just kind of a unique thing to hear because, you know, you always hear it on, even on the kid side, you know, the fear of vaccines and what vaccines can cause. And, yeah. but we also have to always remember, absolutely. They may cause an issue in some, but without them, just imagine if they got the disease that we can easily prevent and it ends up being fatal. So, you know, and that's where, Talking with your veterinarian and coming up with a good plan really is important. Yeah. Now, what about deworming? Is that something that we should be doing preventatively or do we wait until there's an issue before we do it? There's so many over-the-counter worm medications and stuff. What? What? How do we know what to do with that? Right. So as far as deworming in, in our feline patients go, you know, as kittens, we're going to go put them through a regimen as kittens, uh, just prophylactically. We want to make sure uh, that we're clearing anything out that they may be carrying because fecals are not going to be 100% effective at finding an egg, per se. Mm-hmm. Um, with with our dogs, we use heartworm preventatives that deworm them on a monthly basis. And depending on the product that you use, depends on what internal parasite is treated. In our cats, cats are unique. One is we don't routinely, though, again, there's advocates out there that say we should be giving our cats heartworm medication, uh, just like we do our dogs on a monthly basis, and therefore they would be getting dewormed. But in our cats, what we tend to see is if they're strictly indoors, we recommend checking a fecal every year at the annual if we're not seeing anything, we're not deworming. If we see something or at any time over the course of the year, they were to exhibit any diarrhea or anything like that, 
we would probably check deworm as needed, not just prophylactically. Our outdoor cats, however, at our practice, we used to recommend deworming them quarterly if they were outdoors, just mm-hmm. because we might not ever get a stool sample from them. Uh, tapeworms are pretty common in, in our feline patients, not only from fleas, but also because they hunt. And so we have to take that into account. So again, lifestyle, yeah. could, you know, uh, could help us determine what that appropriate recommendation is. Yeah. I don't even think I've ever had a vet do a fecal examination on my adult cats, always my foster kittens. Cause you know, they're either got Ger- Gerardia or, you know, coccidia or something like that, but never on an adult cat, just as a routine visit, have I ever had a vet do a, a fecal sample? You know, if you go to the, the CDC roundworms, for instance, they are contagious to us. Now, mm-hmm. again, it is not, a common thing that we do see, but think about when you have kids, young kids in the family who are infamous for going out or playing, they can play in the litter box and then they're not washing their hands and all of a sudden the hands are going in their mouth. So we do it to make sure that we're also protecting uh, the, the, the human side as well. And that's, we kind of follow the CDC guideline on, you know, stool samples. And in our kennel, we will recommend dogs having it twice a year because, again, we don't want them spreading it to all the other dogs in our kennel because there will be playtime and things like that. And, you know, dogs like to smell around and things like that. You know, cats cats definitely are, are managed a little differently when it comes to internal parasites. But it's always a good idea to test once a year, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And what about those parasites that we're talking about, fleas, ticks, things like that, and and all the diseases that they carry? We should be using flea and tick meds on our cats, even if they're indoor cats? I recommend every cat should have flea and tick. Uh, You just never know what the exposure could be, if the fleas get in. Really, if you think about flea and tick preventative, you're really giving it to prevent ever having a problem. Sometimes the only way we get owners to use the product is after the problem's there. And we may never fully get fleas under control again, or ticks. Ticks can come in on us, ticks spread disease. The best way to kill them, if the tick goes and wants to take a meal off the pet, the preventative kills it. So now that tick doesn't end up on us taking a meal and spreading disease. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's a really important thing. The reason we also advocate, some veterinarians may advocate for heartworm uh, preventive in cats is cats are capable of getting heartworm. The problem is think about the size of their heart. Cats don't usually have a high worm burden because they're not the primary host for the, you know, the, the ones the heartworm want, but that heart's so small, even one or two long adult heartworm can really create an issue. And the other thing that we, uh, you know, that we have going against us in cats is we have no treatment for heartworm in cats. Right. It's hard to diagnose. It's, we can't treat it. And so we have to hope that they out, you know, that they outlive 
the heartworm and that the heartworm in the process of dying off doesn't create complications in them. And so, again, that's why you may hear your vet talk to you about heart, you know, heartworm. And I'll guarantee if they if you're in an area where somebody has seen a high level of heartworm in cats, I know they'll be right, re- you know, recommending it. Yeah. But we don't necessarily follow the same process in cats as strongly as we do in the canines, because that's where it's more prevalent. Sure. And they're outside more, you know, theoretically. What do you think about the, um, like I use cedar oil and lemongrass oil and or diatomaceous earth on Pico. What do you think about those as, as compared to the, the other prescription? People anecdotally have successes with those, you know, and Usually what I'll say is if you're not seeing, if if they're appearing to be successful, it may be just that you don't have any issues around. So if you were ever to start to see a flea or start to see um, external parasites, that would be the time to go, oh, maybe I need to try something, you know, something different. Right. But like I said, they they definitely have a place. I'm, I'm not one to say don't, you know, try those things because there have been successes using those. Yeah. Not everybody wants to always put product or give medication, you know, to their pets, though all these medications are safe. But just like when you're watching TV, everything has a list of side effects this long. (laughs) But they have to do that, you know, for knowledge base, you know, know, so the owner makes an informed decision when they're starting to use a, a medication. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully we live in a dry climate, so we don't see a whole lot of fleas and ticks. So it's, uh, it's not as much of an, of an issue here. Um, so what else about, I want to talk about spay and neuter. That's another thing that if, you know, when you get a new kitten or if you've adopted a cat, people have that choice. Obviously if you're adopting from a shelter or a rescue, the animal's already going to come spayed or neutered, but, um, you know, are spaying and neutering something you generally recommend? And what are the risks of not doing it? You know, and do you, you know, I hear a lot of vets say wait till six months. Cause again, in the shelters, like Pico was, you know, was neutered at eight weeks of age. They wait till they're two pounds. And, but a lot of vets will say, wait till six months, you know, wait, wait for them to get their hormones before we, we take them away. And, you know, you, you hear, well, if you don't do it, you're going to get pyometria, you know, the females, what, what are the real risks associated with doing it and not doing it? And is that something that's generally recommended? So 100% spay neuter is recommended across the board by veterinarians. There's very little instance where I would say I would never recommend spaying and neutering at a young age. Um, matter of fact, I had a, a consult yesterday from a friend, <laughs> they they called because their veterinarian uh, is going to do a surgery because now their pet has what they're assuming is testicular cancer, oh. and you know, and it's pretty uh, large, and the estimate was on the higher side, and so we even talked about this is why we do it young because we can eliminate those type of issues. Um, five to six months is generally when we would recommend as well in our our cats partly because we're watching them grow we want to make sure everything's okay we want to have a couple of examinations on them when they're young 
We want to make sure their vaccines are uh, are complete before we take them to surgery. But we understand that we can do it in shelters. Shelters' main thing is they want to make sure that that cat isn't going to later generate a bunch more kittens that are going to be coming back into the shelter. Exactly. You know, and so you know, for those reasons, it's good. Um, the reason we really want to do it, besides just you know, population control in, in some instances is, you know, when we spay and neuter the life, ex- there are studies out there that say that their longevity is longer if they're spayed and neutered. Partly why that occurs is because they're less likely to want to roam. If they're going to roam, they're going to be outside. If they have their hormones, they're going to want to fight. They're going to get themselves into potential trouble. And so we're taking away some of those risks. As far as medically goes, we can eliminate ovarian cancers. We can, uh, you know, eliminate the pyometra that you spoke about. Um, We can, you know, when you spay them before they start, you know, going into their cycle, you can affect the uh, risk of developing mammary cancer in, Mm -hmm. in our pets. And so it doesn't mean that they won't get it, but when you compare the populations, you know, the population that keeps the hormones and starts cycling is going to have a far greater risk of developing mammary cancer at some point in their life, which can be a pretty major uh, undertaking and surgery if you have to do that. And so I think those are, are some of the reasons. Pyometra, really, we see it. What happens is when the cervix opens, Bacteria gets to ascend in there. When that cervix closes back down, infection can occur, and that can be life-threatening. When you you have this tube, two tubes in in the abdomen, they're full of infection. That can be devastating, you know, to the patients. And that surgery is considered a, an emergency surgery. And we also run the risk of when you're trying to get this massive swollen uterus out that's full of pus. The last thing you want is to that to rupture as you're trying to bring it out because yeah. it's very, uh, ply, you know, it, it, there's a high risk that it could rupture on you. And so it's not, not a surgery that we really like to do and we can prevent it by spaying and neutering. Yeah, absolutely. And what about blood testing, right? How, how frequently do you recommend that a, a cat get blood tests done in their vet visits? We recommend once a year, mm-hmm. you know, they're aging faster than we are. You know, there's plenty of charts out there. It's not necessarily one, you know, seven years to every one year, just like this linearly. It does kind of taper a little bit, but we do know they're aging a little faster. The idea behind it is we want to look at blood work every year because what we're looking for is incremental changes in the blood work that may clue us in early to be able to do an intervention and change some things that could slow down the progress of say a kidney disease, for instance, or, you know, if the liver values are going off. And so it really gives us the ability to try to catch things earlier because in one of our earlier episodes, if you remember, 75% of kidney function needs to be gone before the blood's going to show it. Right. And if we're in chronic kidney disease, I only have 25% of kidney left to make last as long as we possibly can. 
So imagine if I saw indication early on that would allow me to do it. And I've also seen where I've looked at uh, blood work in some of my young patients and the values are high. And so I start tracking it. And we, and what it taught me is there are a small amount of pets out there that their normal is a little on the high side in mm -hmm. some of these values. And so when you're watching the blood work, you can start making that determination too, because that would be really important to know because I, we had a good friend that had a young dog and I had, you know, died, I saw high kidney values. And, and so I watched it for a year and then I sent it to the specialist and they're like, it's fine. This is normal for this dog because nothing else was showing kidney but if that dog was older and I did it, I would have been starting all forms of kidney treatments. Right. Thinking, oh my God, your dog has kidney disease and it could have been normal. Yeah. You know, yeah. So that's why we do it. And and so, you know, I think because medicine has gotten so good, our pets are living longer. And I think a lot of veterinarians are, are practicing preventative blood work every year, just like our doctors do when we exactly. go. Exactly. And I always hate to compare, um, Cats to people, especially, you know, especially in, in a behavior realm, right? Right. No, <laughs> but absolutely. in a medical realm, it sounds like we're, we're a lot more similar. You know, we need those, as we talked about in our last episode, we, we need those at least annual dental cleanings and annual checkups and, you know, annual blood work. I, I do that on Pico. I, I got a baseline when he was six months old and we do it every year just to, to make sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, everything that we try to recommend is the sole purpose is trying to keep our pets with their, you know, pet family as long as we can. Yeah. You know, and we have the medicine to do that. We just need to be able to identify it as quick as we can, particularly in cats, because as we've talked about before, Cats are infamous for waiting until the very end to show us that they're even sick. Yeah. And so if we're not doing something proactively, you know, we're, we're going to lose that battle a hundred percent of the time. And it's no one's fault. It's just, that's the nature of, of cats is they, they're very good at hiding until they can't hide anymore. And then usually it's a little too late. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else you can think of in terms of, feline wellness and general wellness that we haven't touched on yet today? You know, I think we've, we've covered a lot today. I think um, yeah. it can be pretty overwhelming. And I, and I think as we end this conversation, the most important thing is while we covered a lot, your veterinarian is going to talk to you about your individual cats and they're going to formulate a game plan based on your lifestyle, your cat's environment. And so they may not do some of the things we talked about, or they may do all, everything and then some. But if, but those visits also allow them to talk about your favorite thing, which is behaviors. Um, we're asking a lot of questions, just trying to make sure that we're doing everything in our power to keep their pets with them and and again while we know cats it's tough sometimes to get them to the veterinarian yeah. I'll, I'll reiterate 
like we have every show, just make sure you talk to your veterinarian because there's a lot of things being done now to help reduce that stress for yeah. not only your cat, but also for you as a, as a cat owner. So we can do all these things that we talked about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we should do that. We'll, uh, we'll talk about doing a show on, on the actual vet visit and cats too. That, that would be good. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's, a, that, that'd be a great topic. Just walk them through an exam. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and, and what the veterinarian's looking for when, you know, when they're looking at the eyes and listening to the chest and feeling the abdomen. Mm -hmm. um, I think that'd be a good show as well. Good. And anybody out there listening that has any ideas for medical topics for Dr. Hurley and I to talk about, be sure to email them to me at molly at cattalkradio.com. Thank you again for being on our show. Oh, you're welcome. I was was just going to say too, you know, if you do start getting a lot of questions, you know, we could always there's enough we could always do a show just on yeah you know taking questions i mean obviously it's not live but you know if you get enough we can always do that as well absolutely yeah we can that'd be good all right all right well, and, uh, thank you for being on again today and we we'll look forward to having you back next month and until next time everybody keep calm and purr on you can be a cat lifesaver by helping to keep us on the air In the U.S., about 10 cats per hour are euthanized in shelters due to behavior issues. Through this educational radio show, behavior consultations, seminars, and articles, Cat Behavior Solutions intercepts cat behavior problems in the home, reducing the number of cats who are surrendered to shelters. Make a donation at catbehaviorsolutions.com. That's catbehaviorsolutions.com. Looking for products that address specific cat behavior issues? On our website, cattalkradio.com, you'll find things that will create enrichment in the environment for your cat. Toys that will reduce boredom, the world's best and safest nail clippers, and much more. All proceeds support our mission, reducing the number of cats surrendered to shelters. Stop by the site and pick up a few tips and tidbits for your cat today. Visit cattalkradio.com and look for The Behavior Shop. Thanks for tuning in to Cat Talk Radio. Please join your host, Molly DeVos, for another episode of the program on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, go make a connection with your feline friend.